a case before the Supreme Court gives us the opportunity for some very interesting conversation around social media companies. Plus, I have a lot of sound bites I just want to share with you on this week's Corey Truax Show. That case before the Supreme Court and those sound bites will come second and third, but where I want to start is a little bit of a continuation from last week's discussion about the importance of just having good men, decent men, that that is step one in renewing the culture, because I saw something on a show I watch and had some personal experiences that I think are at least, if not enlightening, they're entertaining and at least I hope somewhat informative as we form our minds around the importance of God-given gender roles and their place in a flourishing culture and what we hope is a culture that is to come because it's not the one in which we live. So we'll do that and a whole lot more as we go on this week's Corey Truax Show. Thank you for joining me, wherever you are joining me, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. I'm grateful for that. If you haven't already done so, if you rate the show and or review it, it is helpful for others to discover it. And some of you are faithful to share it on your social. If you are ever, I'm not offended if you don't, but if you are ever inclined to share this content with others, I am grateful. You can give feedback on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or threads. Look for me, Corey Truax. You'll find me there. Follow along or, I don't know, friend on Facebook, follow on others. There's various verbs that go along with the social media apps. Do those. And you can also get me at Corey Truax Show at gmail.com, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. I'll start with personal stories. By the way, this first chunk, it's ultimately about the importance of masculinity and building good men. I'm going to talk about a lot here, including a show I watch that's interesting. Uh, just a th- I, thought, I thought I had, but I'll start with a personal story. Last Wednesday, I was walking around where I work my day job at North Greenville University. I take one walk per day, usually during lunch. It's about 15 minutes I take the same route. It's a beautiful place up there. If you've never been to North Greenville, you're invited. Just come, We're a fairly open place. You can come up and take a look. Glassy Mountain is well-framed. Pinnacle Mountain, Paris Mountain in various different directions. It's that time of year. It's starting to get really nice out just to walk around a really beautiful place. And it's rare that I run across my second eldest nephew on campus. He's busy. I'm busy. We are in different circles. But this is one of the two boys that I got to play something of a dad role for in their younger years. Those years go by fast. They were fun. I love Facebook memories, Instagram archives for just seeing them when they were 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 and all of our gravitopian trips and movie trips and all the stuff we used to do. And now they're grown men, bigger than I am. And I just happened to run across him on campus. I think it was, not just I think, it was a divine interaction because the Lord decided to have him walking his route when I was walking a different route, and we got to just come across each other and have a short conversation. I came away from that conversation so thankful, so grateful for the young man he's become. He's only 19. But in that conversation, he shared with me something very disappointing that had happened, something he was hoping for did not materialize. And it, it was in regards to the university where he is, where I have some pull, I have some, I have not, I wouldn't use the word significance, but I have, I have some influence. He was expressing this to me, just as a fat, this disappointment, this bad experience of, of not getting a thing he wanted, just as I would say a son telling a, a father or maybe a, a nephew telling an uncle. It was obvious he was not looking for me to intervene. He wasn't complaining or bemoaning. 
And even when I expressed a, you know, a regret, man, I hate that's happening, his attitude was, yeah, that's just, you know, it's part of life, it's just being a man, you move on. And I know it was a, it's disappointment, and as you know, the, the heart a father has for a son, I was disappointed for him. I hurt for him. Even now when I'm talking about it, I hurt for him. But his attitude was what I needed to see in a young man. It wasn't woe is me. It wasn't an expression of unfairness. It wasn't looking for an unfair advantage because of who he was connected to. He was just sharing information, and he was resolute on what he was going to do next and how he was going to deal with it because life is disappointing, and a lot of times you don't get what you want, and that's growing up. That's being a man. Being a man is often interacting with a world where you don't get the things you want, and you get tough, you accept your outcomes, you even get stoic. I think one of the great gifts men can give their wives, their kids, is stoicism. Let your, let the women in your life, let the kids in your life express their panic, express their fears, express their, I, I use the word weakness here, but not really as a, I'm not using it as a negative, but when they're, when they're weak, let them express it. But that's, that's not for us. For, for us, one of the great gifts we, we can give that we'll never get credit for, and that's okay, is just be strong. Interact with hard things and be strong about it. Man, I saw that in him. A real disappointment, a real challenge, and then a resolute attitude. I'm just going to get through. I'm, gonna do, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it because I'm a man. That's how it is. We move on. We could use a lot of that. I was one, and that's, I say that as, uh, with this idea. So he was a young man who grew up with men around him who taught him that. Life's hard. You don't get what you want a lot. It's actually really often. You just don't get what you want. It's a broken world. Figure out a way to get over it. Move on. Figure out your next step. And he did, and he wasn't even mad about it. It was awesome. The, the next one very, is very much more uh, superficial. But I, was, um, I do the grocery shopping for our household because I enjoy it. And uh, those, it's usually Wednesday afternoon, so it was the same day. I went grocery shopping after work. I ran into my eldest nephew because uh, I glanced up from my shopping cart, and out in the distance, I see this giant, muscular dude. And I'm a fitness guy, so there's always, like, an admiration. Like, that dude's got game. You know, check, check him out. I, can't, I wonder what he can bench. And I took, you know, an extra second look, and I was like, oh, that's my nephew. That's my 20-year – I guess he's 20 – your old giant dude, and I, I look at his basket as I walk up to him, and he's got like 20 pounds of you know, gr- not a chicken he's going to grill up and all the proteins that for, for this, this good endeavor he has, this endeavor uh, of, of manhood that is in part, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to be strong. And he also has good, uh, good motivation. to, to both, both of these guys are, are thinking about the future often. So in any event, my point here being, these are good traits for men. Do the hard things, and when bad stuff happens, get over it. Move on. I know I said that hard because I'm talking to a lot of men here. We just get over it and we move on. Take care of yourself. Plan ahead. Can you like? Uh, here's Caleb. He's meal prepping. He's prepping for him himself. Not asking anyone else to do it for him. Taking responsibility for what he's going to do. He's not taking that chicken back to his mom, to his girlfriend, saying, "Will you make my food for me?" He's not doing that. He's going to take care of himself. This is. Good and men listening to me. This is good. These are good things we offer. Now, I took that on Wednesday. And I I I live in this I live in a world where the relationship between 
masculine and feminine is fraught. I would go so far as to say in the in the feminist, at least second, third wave feminist world, and how that affects the female mind in the modern day, there's a natural skepticism towards masculinity in men. Granted, that's earned a lot. It won't take you long to start going through your newsfeed where you go, oh, considering all these horrific things men have done to women in the last 72 hours, it won't take you long, you might go, I see, I can see why women have a natural skepticism towards masculinity in men. Men tend, men tend to do a lot of bad things. That's just the nature of sin in a sinful, broken world. And so, I ha- and I uh, put these two things together. These these two young men that I see developing. I even think about my own marriage, my own relationship. I think about a lot of the relationships are, are around me in my closest, um, in my closest world, which is going to be Christian relationships. And you know what I often feel is a healthy confidence that wives have in husbands, that ladies have in men, because the men are doing really well at being men. They are taking care of their responsibilities. They have grown into their masculine, and the ladies in their lives are happy to defer to them. That's the key word, deference. They're happy to show deference to the men in their lives, their husbands, to show submission because they're looking at a man and saying, I can have confidence in that man because he's shown himself worthy of confidence. That took that into Friday. Friday for me is often some housework, meal prep. I, I don't work a full schedule on Friday, so I'm usually working around the house doing things. And then after I've done a lot of work, I will allow myself one hour. I will allow myself one hour of frivolity. And what I've been doing on that hour before my wife gets home on Fridays is watching a show on Apple TV called Masters of the Air. I recommend it to you. If you got to have something of a stomach. It's a war movie, and in the Air, Fo- the Air Force battles of World War II, uh, you were still mostly just shooting giant bullets at each other, and often those bullets that were intended for planes would hit humans. And I don't, I don't even want to ask you to imagine what that looks like. It's horrific and gross and terrible. But it was a, it's a very good move uh, show. I believe it's Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, and they've not made anything bad ever, and they. They do war particularly well. Here's what I notice in this show when, let's say, these pilots that go on leave to, to London or some of these major cities. There is not just a deference from, that the ladies of that era were giving the soldiers of that era, the men of that era. It's something even more. It's a gratefulness, it's an admiration. And as a student of history, I know that the show is largely giving something that was very accurate. It wasn't just a deference to masculinity as the superior. There was something of a recognition from a lady at that time to what these men were doing and the men that led, excuse me, that met their their challenge. Just imagine that for a moment. Being a young woman, teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, in the World War II era. Uh, Basically, every man you know from the age of 18 to around 50 might need to die for you, might need to go to the the air, the land, the sea, put his life on the line, and if you are a young lady in that time period, you know this, I will never be asked to do that. And the people that I see out across oceans seem terrifying and scary 
and what what is available to me to protect me from what seems very terrifying are men. Men in this culture will take upon themselves the mantle to go protect. In this particular case, it wasn't to go conquer, it was to protect. And that led to this natural, I think, obvious dynamic. Coming up as men, you recognize part of my responsibility to my family, to my neighborhood, to my culture, to my country, is I respect, the, I protect those who are physically weaker than I am. And the natural dynamic then, when you actually had enemies, this is what's part of what happened in the last 80 years for the United States is we haven't had any. The one enemy we had, the, the Soviets, they were threatening to blow everyone up. Like they could shoot a nuke over here and we just said back to them, if you shoot one, we'll shoot one. If you shoot another, we'll shoot another. And we'll all just die. Hundreds of millions of us will just die by nuclear weapons, but no soldiers are fighting. And so no existential threat exists where men have to grow up feeling this way. Because I didn't grow up feeling it. But if you were growing up in bygone eras, you, you were a man, you grew up knowing, if the older men, the older people in my country, and the women and children in my country, if they need defending, I will give up my life to do it. It's my responsibility to give up. Just, and why? Because I'm a man. By dint of my, my, my gender role, as we call it now, I must give up my life for others. And so I want to grow up and into that kind of character. I, I largely think the Captain America character from the Marvel series is what embodies this, and it's why we like him. He was this little scrawny nothing, but he felt his duty, that my duty is to protect my, my country, to protect my people. How, how easy is it then to show some deference, if you're a lady at that time, to show some deference to those men? They're literally putting, on their, putting down their lives for you. And now here we are in the modern age. Everything is easy compared to what it was then. We have no existential threats. Everyone can provide for themselves, protect themselves in a lot of ways. And men got lost. Our, listen, I'm glad we don't have wars. Listen to me. I'm so glad we don't have wars. I feel like we might have forgotten how horrific they are. I love that part of the picture of the new heavens and the new earth is that we get to, we get to bend those, those weapons into plowshares. Peace. Peace is what's coming. There will be no wars eventually. But that lack, admittedly, that lack of war, that lack of conflict had men figuring out, well, what, what is my role? What is my duty? We didn't train them well, and then a lot of them misbehaved, and it's earned a lot of distrust. Now, there's no, there's no form for the natural dynamic, even if it is innate. If, the God, puts, if God puts in us as men to lead and for ladies to follow their, their husbands, the national dynamic is so different now that it, it even fights against those instincts. Just a thing I found to be true. I have no... Um, Solution for you. I was telling you I looked around and I, and on that show, and after seeing what how my men are, how the young men I had influence are, how the influ, how the young men I had influence over, how they're turning out, and how the marriages and a lot of the relationships around me work. You know, a lot of what's missing is men not having the duty to grow into, so that ladies will just respect this man is doing what he is supposed to be doing, and so there's some. Enmity that grows.
Final thing for this is I, I told you I wanted to play some sound clips today. Sometimes I just hear stuff and go, yep, that's good. I don't know what to do with it. I just think everyone should hear this. I don't know who this is. He's apparently a gigantically uh, popular podcaster. When you hear his voice, I suspect a lot of you will know who he is because he's much more popular with the younger crowd. He appears to me to be in his late 20s, early 30s. He's talking here about the difference between male depression and female depression. I don't think he means clinical. I think he just means feelings of sadness and times when you're low and how they are so fundamentally different. So I, I think this is good for the ladies that listen to understand men better. Gentlemen, to hear what's true of you articulated. Uh, I think the first part of this audio is cut off a little bit, and the first thing he says is male depression. Just in case it's cut off, uh, listen to this, and I'll have some comments. Male depression gets treated like female depression. Men are made to feel loved and accepted when all they want to do is feel capable and powerful. Mm-hmm. Give a man a purpose and the ability to achieve it, and he will crawl over broken glass with mm-hmm. a smile. And I think that feeling capable and powerful and competent and respected and admired is something that will get a man so far. Mm -hmm. You give a man those things and he'll deal with suffering until the ends of the earth. It's a great, great insight. Especially that entire world, the world of mental health care, is so feminized, we do treat everyone the same. But I, I can tell you this, in my lowest moments, I didn't know I needed... I did not know. I didn't need to know I was loved. <laughs> you know, it's just not. Now, granted, that's probably because I grew up in an intact family and I feel loved. But I think this is just true of men. Listen, I'll be uncomfortable. I'll feel miserable. I'll be generally unhappy. But if you've given, if I've got purpose, and I know the people around me know I'm on my purpose, I'm doing my job, I'm getting it done. If I've got that, I've got some respect. I'm being treated as competent. I'm being treated as someone who is getting it done. Well, that's what I need. To this extent, I'll say it. Uh, like you know, that, Michael, that Michael Scott clip from The Office where he says, uh, I want to be... It's something like, I, I want to be feared and loved. I, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. That is not the case uh, for most men. I, I can... I could, I'll struggle through it for a minute, but I can be okay, and most men can be okay. Not being approved of, as long as we know we have the respect of the person. That I've done, I, now, the, the, I guess the caveat on that is, there are people that I feel like I'm pretty sure I don't have the respect of, but their respect is not worth having, because they are not respectable people. But beyond that, that's what men need. Purpose, drive, task. And if we're made to feel that kind of respect around those things, there's very little we won't do to get to get done what we need to get done. All right, that's man, that's was 20 minutes. I didn't mean to do it like that long. Uh, so let's move on to this. Uh, over in uh, Washington D.C., where there seems to be a dearth of good men, just seems to be garbage men, and I don't even mean people who pick up garbage because those are hardworking dudes. J- talking about their character, it seems to be people of garbage character all over that city. But there were some interesting arguments in that city this week in front of the Supreme Court that I want to tell you about for this reason in particular. I love it when a topic comes up where it doesn't just fit into red team, blue team, conservative team, liberal team, and we just go to our corners and we know where everyone's going to think. I love a topic that crosses lines and people that often disagree start agreeing and people that often agree disagree. I listen to a lot of the oral arguments in front of the Supreme Court for the su- social media case I'm about to tell you about, and it was all over the place. 
from every left-wing, right-wing judge. It was all over the place. So let me give you the facts, and then I don't know that I have a great deal of conclusions for you, but I do have some thoughts. And, and I should say, we're not talking about this for no reason. This is a significant case. This thing's important for the future of how the country works. I mean, just think about social media for a minute. In our country alone, I think it's 200 million people have some kind of social media account, at least one of the big three, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I mean, it, it, it's our, I mean, arguably now, isn't Facebook the number one people get, quote, their news, if you can call it news? It displaced Iwana with Facebook Marketplace. Facebook Video does not compete quite with YouTube, but it tries. I mean, it's... I mean, it's 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 powerful. Twitter's powerful. Instagram's powerful. I would argue that the social media companies are more powerful than any companies we've ever had. You toss in Google, and they technically have YouTube. YouTube is in the social media yeah, that environment. They're more powerful than any of our, I don't know, like telecommunications companies of the past, or the water companies, the oil companies, the pharmaceutical companies, the most powerful companies maybe in the world are these social media companies. So here are the facts. You already, you probably already know this, but the social media giants, they curate your feed. Often that's through data collection, and they just figure out what you want to hear, what things you're interested in, and they push those videos, those posts to you. They get a lot of data on you. They'll show, for me, uh, a, a video of, uh, of breaking down this NFL defense is very interesting to me. I'll stick around. I might watch the next one. The video of a dog doing something cool, I'll probably watch and watch the next one. If you show me a cat, I'm probably not going to watch it. And so they learn that about me, and they'll start showing me the things, the posts, the videos that will keep me there because that's their only purpose is to keep me scrolling. So they curate your feed. That includes pushing some content and constraining other content. So that is sometimes driven by the data, the fact that I don't like cat videos, but I do like dog videos. Sometimes the data will do that. But sometimes agenda does that. That the famous, Some of the most famous ones are going to be around COVID-19 information, where social media companies just constrained some folks. That if there were keywords or certain perspectives in posts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, that those were going to be, they call it, throttled. Their reach would be throttled. You could post all you want, but it's not showing up in the, the search page. It's not showing up in the For You page over on TikTok. It's going to be throttled content. So they curate, and then they choose. They have the power to choose the things they want you to see and the things they prefer you not to see or they don't think have value. That's the nature of the social media companies. They're collecting your data, and then they make editorial decisions about what to push. Texas, then, the state of Texas, and I believe the state of Florida as well, passed laws saying they can't do that. That social media companies can't have policies that favor one piece of content over the other. Now, that's hard to imagine how you, how you put that into practice, but that's the law they passed. That Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you can't. You can't. But I guess Meta is really the company. Meta owns both Facebook and Instagram. You can say that to Google when it comes to YouTube. You can't make editorial choices about what you're pushing to people or what you're constraining. That was the law. 
the social media giants, Meta, Twitter, uh, it's not even Google. Google started a parent company called Alphabet. So Meta, Alphabet, Twitter, they sue. And they say it's our First Amendment right as companies that we can run how we want to run. You don't have to use our product if you don't want to. Get off Facebook. Get off Instagram. Get off Twitter. Get off TikTok. Get off all of these. We get to choose how we want to run our companies. It's our First Amendment right. We'll call it a First Amendment right to speech. If you want to call us a press company, like a media company, well, we have the right to free press. That's in the First Amendment as well. And so they've sued the states of Texas and Florida, and then they had to go to the Supreme Court. The the trade group lawyers are arguing for the big tech companies. They're arguing in front of the Supreme Court against the legal interests of Texas and Florida about whether or not Florida and Texas can enforce this law. So there's the facts. It touches on one of the fundamental questions that we have to answer about social media companies. Are they platforms where it's a, it's fairly free-for-all, we're all just free to go post what we want in an merit, meritocratic way? If you are talented or have a message that finds interest and you find an audience that you're just going to be able to organically grow that audience, and if you have unpopular things to say and not a lot of people want to hear it or you're not good at it, your platform will stay pretty small. But Facebook in the background there, Instagram in the background there, they're, they're staying out of it. It's just organically, whoever's going to grow is going to grow. Or are they not a platform? Instead, are they a publisher? Are they like the New York Times or foxnews.com or Washington Post? Are they a, a publisher that does make editorial choices so that the person pushing on their social media, the moon landing is fake, can, can they change their algorithm to say, fine, you know, if we want to, let's, let's push people that say those types of things to each other. Let's show them other posts of people who agree with them so they can have their own community, but largely let's not show that to the general population. Let's throttle that. That's an editorial choice I'm making the same way that when you have 20 people submit editorial opinion, opinion editorials to the New York Times editorial page, they'll accept eight of them and they're just saying no to the other 12, just saying we don't want to hear, we, we don't want your editorial. Maybe later, but we're not publishing you. So which one are they? Are they are they a platform or are they a publisher? The social media companies seem to argue, as I was listening, that they're a publisher. They talked about themselves as the modern-day newspaper. And so therefore, the, the press get to choose what stories they cover. The press get to choose what they push and what they constrain. And therefore, they get the right to do that as well. That's again, I didn't come to you with any answers. I came to you with the questions, and I'm inviting conversation at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or threads. Look for me or Corey Truax Show at gmail.com, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. I don't know which one they are. It is their company. They get to decide, I guess. I don't feel like that was the original deal they made with us, that the original deal they made with us is they would be platforms, but that doesn't seem what they're doing now. We have to also decide then. This case is complicated. Are, are they p platforms or are they publishers? So the question becomes, what is speech? There was one line of questioning I thought was very intriguing that uh, I can't remember what Justice was asking, but they asked, well, part of your decisions for what you show people and what you don't, that's from browsing their own internet history, right? Like when they're on your app, you're in the background of their 
Internet Explorer or Safari or Google Chrome. You're checking all their cookies. You're checking into their email and what they've gotten. You're building a profile of them and all their data. Is it free speech to mine their data? Is that your argument? And the f- social media companies basically said, yes. We're free to run how we want to run. All of that language is in the terms of agreement. So when you sign on to a, sign on to a social media site and you click yes, I've read and acknowledged the, the terms and conditions. Well, one of the terms and conditions is we're going to profile the heck out of you. We're going to dig into your data. We're going to find out what we should try to sell you, what kind of ads we should try to sell you, what kind of content is there. Well, you have to answer that question. Is that the case? Is data collection free speech, as they argue? One court, I found out during these oral arguments, has already ruled that. A state court in California ruled, yes, social media companies can, can collect data on you as a matter of the First Amendment. I don't know if it's a First Amendment thing, but again, I, I'm I'm torn on that. I mean, we when we sign on, we click the terms and conditions, we say yes. You now get to know everything about me if you want to. You know, I, two more things about this, and I'm just asking you to think about it. I don't know yet where where I land or how to work this out. The argument started to one strain of argument began uh, the question: Are are these social media companies? Is Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, are they like the new television or the new radio? And might they be regulated like TV and radio have been in the past? Example of that, if you are, let's go, probably 30 and under, you probably won't know about this unless you're just a student of history. Uh, But throughout the 70s, 80s, especially the 90s, there was a, a, a thing that folks on the left tried to push constantly called the Fairness Doctrine. And that idea would have been an FC, FCC, Federal Communications? Yeah, Federal Communications. A regulation from the FCC that would say to every uh, talk radio, and if you basically, if you are a TV station or a, a radio station that does editorial content, you do things of, of current events, you have to give equal time to different to each perspective. So if if it ever would have passed, it would sing to talk radio stations. If you're playing three hours of Rush Limbaugh, you have to give three hours to a left wing host. They would have said the WLFJ back in the day when I was on. I guess my version was WHRT. You've got to give equal time. I opposed that my whole life. Thought it was a terrible idea. It seems to be that the arguments from Texas and Florida, though, at some level are, are saying of the internet companies, or at least the social media companies, we need fairness doctrine. If you're going to push one thing, you must push the other. You have to give equal access to information. And I don't know how I feel about that. I think it's detrimental. I think it's bad that Facebook and maybe not Twitter much anymore, but that Meta and Alphabet, the owners of Google, YouTube, Facebook and Instagram, I think it's detrimental to the country that they operate the way they do. But do we do we want to go down the road where the government can tell them they can't operate that way? There's really only one argument that came up that I thought was just a terrible argument and I, that I reject. One of them was we sh- uh, the, these. This was made by the social media companies, by the way. Um, that they needed to be treated like a common, I think they're called common carriage laws. 
Oh, no, no. Sorry. I, the opposite. Not made by the social media companies, but made by Texas. This argument's made by Texas and Florida. The common carriage laws were, uh, if you're a utility, you can turn no one down and you can treat no one differently. So if you're a water company, an electric company, or a phone company back, I, I guess we still call the phone a utility. I mean, for a time, it was an obvious utility. I mean, you really couldn't operate without it. But if you were water, electric, or phone, you can't tell. You can't say to someone who's wanting electricity to their home, uh, easily easily combine utilities where I live. Can't say no. We don't like your views on immigration, so you don't get electricity. And for that matter, it was part of the common carriage laws. Uh, you can't punish a customer with lower water pressure because you have some problem with the cu- with the customer. You, everyone has to have equal access to electricity, water, and phone service. The argument that Texas Florida was making was, well, these are basically utilities now. Facebook, Instagram, we should think about them as water companies, electric companies, and phone companies, and they got to serve everyone equally. That's going. <laughs> that assumes that the internet is a utility, I guess, which could be argued now that the internet might be as significant to our lives as water and electricity. But I know this is not true. Social media is not fundamental to life. And social media companies can't be treated like water and electric companies. Those can't be utilities. Now, I give you all that just to really ask your thoughts. I don't know where I stand, and I'm open to... I'm open to learning, but those are the those were the arguments made before the Supreme Court. You should know that they're happening, and then we'll get an answer probably sometime in June, maybe late May. That kind of could change the country on how these companies operate. And by the way, if they do that in June, consider what happens a few months later. Just going right into the heart of election season, and social media algorithms and social media decisions often affect election outcomes. So. All right, that's all. I, that's the facts. I would love to know your feedback on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Threads. I'll probably put a poll on the Spotify version of this show with a question surrounding this if you want to respond there or give any comments there. I have one more thing I want to do for you, but that reminds me, since we're talking about the Supreme Court and what they deal with primarily is law. And over the last couple years on the show, I've been trying to deal with how we think about modern-day law from a biblical perspective, and I can't think of any way in which biblical law would be used to decide this question about social media companies, and there's some other odd ones like that. You'll find some laws in the Bible around uh, what happens when you're you're burning your fields for a good reason, and your fire gets out of control, and it damages someone else's property, and how you pay recompense. You get some confusing laws in the Old Testament that way and how they might apply to modern day. Well, I suspect that you have not had your property hurt by some random fire someone else started, but the modern day analog might have happened to you. And that modern day analog is, I think, getting hurt in a car accident or getting hurt at work. Guys, I know those things can be very severe. Medical bills pile up. You're losing wages. And all the while you're doing that, you're trying to figure out this very labyrinth process of getting justice. I don't want you to be intimidated by it. Don't be scared. There are people who can help. The one I want to introduce you to is a personal friend of mine. His name is Samuel Harms, H-A-R-M-S. 
as in stay out of harm's way. You can Google him, or you can also find him at 864-666-6666. He is Samuel Harms, attorney at law. For real, don't try to do these things alone. Call somebody who can help out with those questions. He is Samuel Harms here in Greenville at 33 Market Point Drive, Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. The number is 666-6666. So if you have had your property damaged by someone's out-of-control fire, or more likely the modern-day analog being hurt in a car accident or hurt at work, Give Samuel Harms a call. Don't try to navigate it alone. You can find him at 864-666-6666. It's Samuel Harms, attorney at law. Final thing for me. I just love stuff like this that I'm about to share with you. I don't know who originally posted it, but it, it sent me down a small rabbit hole of some audio I just want to share with you. I, I've now been alive for almost 40 years. And it has occurred to me several times how fast the world has moved politically. And so I just want to play something first that I forgot about, but this is from the State of the Union in 1995. If you'll recall, President Bill Clinton was the guy giving the State of the Union in 1995. And if you don't remember, he was of the left. He was a member of the Democratic Party. I want you to hear this clip because it blew my mind that this was the case when I was nine years old, the president was saying this. All Americans, not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants. The public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more, by hiring a record number of new border guards, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before, by cracking down on illegal hiring, by barring welfare benefits to illegal aliens. In the budget I will present to you, we will try to do more to speed the deportation of illegal aliens who are arrested for crimes, to better identify illegal aliens in the workplace, as recommended by the commission headed by former Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. He continues on that for like 20 more seconds, and there's a big applause in the entire room. So speedy deportations, more deportations, more border control, secure of the border. That was the position of the president from the left in 1995. Hardcore. Now consider where we are. Just open borders like crazy. Uh, two more of these I want to... Share with you just because they they reminded me of things that I had seen in the past and just how fast times change. In my lifetime, we we went from everybody kind of gets it. You should probably have a secure border. And again, I'm really pro immigration. I want a lot more immigration. I want it to be less expensive and easier. But everyone was on board that you have to have it in an orderly way. Just 30 years ago, and now that's a deeply controversial thing to say. How about this one? This is from 19, I think this is 1982. No, sorry, uh, let me find it. 1987. With all the talk about Christian nationalism nowadays, give this one a listen. This is then-Senator Joe Biden. I believe all Americans are born with certain inalienable rights. As a child of God, I believe my rights are not derived from the Constitution. My rights are not derived from any government. My rights are not derived from any majority. My rights are because I exist, I have certain rights. That they're given to me and each of my fellow citizens by our Creator, and they represent the essence of human dignity. 
You say that now, and you are a Christian nationalist. Just in 1987. When was I born? 86. So, like, in my lifetime, again, that's the person of the left saying rights come from God. Also, by the way, that's in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's from the Declaration. It used to be very normal thing to say, and now we live in an age where that's insane. It's crazy to say. So from a time when we all got it, legal immigration, not a good idea, even if we want more legal immigration. We all understand, obviously, rights don't come from government. Rights are inherent to us, and governments are given to to protect those rights. And then this one, I love this one. It makes me laugh so much now. Um, Because I used to be so passionate about these things. The way that, if you're American on on the left now, thinks about Russia, they are the villain of villains. And they started being the villain of villains in 2016 and 17. Before that, I recall, if you're on the left, you're pretty pro-Russia because Russia came out of communism and we're still some kind of socialist type of place. And you're just genuinely, generally friendly to gigantic governments like the Russians. So much so that the former president, Barack Obama, had this little funny quip back to Mitt Romney in 2012. Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat. Because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda. You said Russia. In the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back. Oh, wow. What a quick one. That was good. Now, here in 2024, uh, who's the biggest geopolitical foe? It's probably Russia. That would be my guess. Biggest pl- geopolitical foe of the United States that's actually fighting against the United States' interests. But, and, and now, by the way, consider what's happened. The That's 12 years ago. The nominee for the Republican Party was saying, you know the problem? Russia. And on the left, it was, no, Russia's great. And now, uh, we switched. Russia's our biggest geopolitical foe. They're, they're a big problem. And over the Republican nominee, not that big of a problem with Russia. <laughs> it just... It switches on us. There's two things on that. Uh, one is duplicity and not... It's, it's being wary of your politicians. It's, it's a recognition of how fast things change in time and how uh, if you feel like you're living in the weirdest time, you kind of are because it, it went crazy quickly. I said two things. One was just recognizing the duplicity of politicians. The second was if you think you live in a crazy time, you do. Things happen fast. I think that final thing is just, again, recognizing significance. At any of those moments in 87, in 97, and in 2012, it seemed like those moments were very significant and very important. And man, everything just uh, ebbs and flows and pendulum swings. And so having a good attitude, a smart attitude around uh, not putting too much, too much stock in those things is helpful. Speaking of, uh, tomorrow, if all plans go as we think they'll go, I'll be with the Doxology Podcast, Westminster Doxology Podcast with Cody Fields and... Uh, his group over there in Greer. So, um, and that's also Pastor Bradley Cox. So, uh, anyway, we'll probably be talking about some of that. So, keep an eye out on their feed as well. I'll share it on social media, but watch their feed as well uh, to listen to that when it comes out. I've run out a lot of time and gone a little bit over of what I needed to do. So, thank you for listening. You can give me feedback on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Threads. You can also get me at Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. If the Lord allows, I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.